Good evening, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and you have reached Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the 20th day of May, 2022, and I'm going to give you lecture number 12 in cytoepigenetics. Now, there are multiple mechanisms that we need to discover and elaborate on that relate to how mitochondria communicate with other organelles in the cell. Remember the emphasis here is to describe how subcellular phenomena, which include methylation and acetylation of components of nucleic acid metabolism, particularly DNA, RNA, and histone proteins, that are found in chromatin, all of which, after that covalent modification, associate with changes in gene expression, the phenomenon that has been described as epigenetics, that is beyond or above the genetic profile. So you have promoters, and you have enhancers, and you have termination marks. And so you understand the transcription is a canonical molecular program that involves transcription factors and RNA polymerase, amongst other proteins, binding proteins, that are necessary to open up chromatin and initiate transcription of specific genes. And after that transcription, of course, the message is modified at the five prime end and at the three prime end. Once it is matured sufficiently, it is translocated to the cytoplasm from the nucleus, from where it was synthesized off of unwound DNA. And that nascent messenger RNA transcript has nevertheless been processed sufficiently so that it is now a message which can be read via translation. It is then translated depending on the uh, sequence that it, it imparts to the molecular machinery. It will either be translated on polyribosomes in the cytoplasm or on the ribosomal machinery within the endoplasmic reticulum. <clears throat> so what we're talking about here is that epigenetic alteration of the transcription of those genes will tremendously alter the fate and the activity and the cell surface phenomenon of any cell that has been epigenetically altered. We've talked about the writing of epigenetic signatures, the reading of those signatures and then the erasure of those signatures. And it's not a process that it goes from A to C, and then that's the end of the story. This kind of epigenetic phenomenon can be written and then not read until much later, if it's read at all. And after reading it and therefore modifying gene expression, that entire 
sequence of events, all that molecular machinery that got you that far can be erased. So you can understand how difficult that is to measure. You can measure grossly things like methylation patterns and acetylation patterns. There are multiple techniques for this. But the problem is, even if you find a methylome or an acetylome, again, on DNA, RNA, or on lysine residues and histones, it doesn't necessarily mean that methylome or acetylome, those would be the canonical epigenetic signatures, are even read. And understand that we say that they're in CPG islands at promoter regions or enhancer regions of genes that will alter the chromatin retailering in such a way that you'll get a, this epigenetic effect and you'll get a change in transcription. Even that canonical description of epigenetics isn't necessarily so. You have to actually measure whether or not those covalent modifications of DNA, RNA, or protein actually resulted in a suppression or an activation of very specific transcriptional patterns and sequences. And then that part, that's just discussing the mechanism. Then the last several lectures, I've taken you much deeper into the recesses of the epigenetic platonic cave where I've shown you that minor fluctuations in tricarboxylic acid intermediates can tremendously affect all of those epigenetic mechanisms. And then we have to discuss how are there changes in the concentration of alpha-ketoglutarate or 2-hydroxyglutarate or succinyl-CoA or citrate or even when we're talking about the covalent modification of proteins that act as transcription factors, we also have to include things like palmitylation, meristylation, prenylation of proteins. And how does that relate to de novo fatty acid synthesis or complex lipid metabolism or membrane turnover? And that's why we have to describe all these mechanisms associated with the mitochondria because there is an active bioenergetic component of all of this. Depletion of ATP or elevated levels of ATP and the ratios of NAD to NADH, FAD to FADH2, all of that has a tremendous modifying effect on the methylation pattern and then the reading and the writing of subsequent methylation patterns after cell division or the suppression of that. And then ultimately, of course, the erasure. Okay. And we've only really touched on a few aspects of it. Now, because I call the cytoepigenetics, remember that the peroxisome plays a major role as well, because the peroxisome is involved in intermediary metabolism, redox, and indirectly bioenergetics and directly membrane surface topodynamics and topokinetics. That is the passage and the uh, communication network that happens intracellularly and intercellularly. 
And then we have to invoke yet the other major paradigmatic um, phenomena, the event that's occurring all the time in mammalian system. And that event is the immune system. And, you know, normally we think of the immune system as a defensive system and also surveillance phenomena. But you know that if you listen to my lectures for the last five years, that I've been online talking about this, that the immune system does much more than a defensive role or even a surveillance role, which of course is a component of defense. Not only does it go to war against pathogens or xenobiotics or cells which have become tumorigenic or cells which are forced into senescence or autophagy, or necrotosis, or ferritosis, and ferret out those alterations and repair them. All that's an immune system phenomenon. And all the production of all the cytokines and chemokines and matrix metalloproteases, which go to work to regulate those pathophysiological and pathobiochemical events. Well, as it turns out, the immune system is greatly affected by epigenetic alterations in gene expression. And we mentioned this and we went into detail in this when we went through all the aging lectures and the type 2 diabetic phenomenon of pathophysiology and pathobiochemistry. So you have to keep in mind that the immune system, which is this tremendously powerful homeostatic and, and stress responsive mechanism to maintain the living system and even to allow alterations in the living system that maintain not only homeostatic control over all the metabolic grids, but an ability to go through differentiation and development because the immune system is involved in that. And also repair. Repair of what? Repair of things like, yeah, neural transmission, action potentials, microglial repair and alteration of axonal migration into new neuronal beds. That's all the immune system. So the immune system is there is far removed from the typical classical immune response of defending and surveilling and removing waste or removing deadly substances or cells, organisms. And again, I've been talking about this for years, five years online, 15 years in publications in neuroscience and primarily in describing the tailoring of the central nervous system. So let's get back to mitochondria. Mitochondria have multiple ways to communicate. They can, mitochondria will release cytochrome C, for example, that induces classical apoptosis. Mitochondria can also be involved in the activation of the AMP activated protein kinase because of alterations in bioenergetics. That is the ratio of ATP to 
to ADP and ATP to AMP, right? And the energy charge, right? The entire energy charge of the cell. AMP kinase also controls mitochondrial fission and fusion. And indeed, mitochondria are a major source of reactive oxygen. Reactive oxygen can be utilized as a sensor to control the expression of transcription factors from the nucleus. And also, ultimately, to alter mitochondrial DNA during the immune response. There's even one more mechanism we could discover about mitochondria, and that is what we've just been describing. All of the possible TCA cycle intermediates that control cellular metabolism, such things as transamination, um, the movement of bulk, reducing power from the cytoplasm to the mitochondria and back again. Carbon sources for gluconeogenesis, fatty acids for keto, uh, ketone body synthesis, right? But on top of all of that, those intermediates play roles in modifying the activity of enzymes, which control epigenetic phenomena. We talked about the dioxygenases, the TET enzymes, which control the level of methylation because of generating intermediates in the decay of that methyl group that become oxygenated, right? We talked about hydroxy and carboxy carbon alterations, which completely change the methylation pattern of DNA, RNA, and protein. We also talked about the RNA methylases and demethylases, and of course the lysine demethylases, which are the histone deacetylases and methylases combined. So you have two different phenomena when you start talking there. You have HDACs, and then you have demethylases. And the HDACs have a complete family of enzymes known as sirtuins. And these sirtuins are activated by nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide oxidized form, which puts that right back into being regulated by the mitochondrial electron transport chain and the peroxisomal ox oxidation reactions, which also utilize NADP. So you have NAD and NADP that are also necessary for redox metabolism, uh, altering the peroxidation of fatty acids, which occurs in the peroxisome. Okay. So that's yet another very important feature of the mitochondrion. So you have methylation and acetylation being those canonical epigenetic changes. So cytochrome C release from the mitochondria will activate caspase and that will cause apoptosis. Hydrogen peroxide will generate an alteration in protein thiol oxidation, which will lead to changes in gene expression. The AMP kinase will change entirely the dynamics of mitochondrial activity 
which can be associated with catabolic switching. For example, glycolysis to fatty acid oxidation. Mitochondrial DNA works through the C-gas sting TLR9 and LRP3 inflammasome pathway, all of which mediate inflammation. And then, like I said, the fifth of those, this is there were five, this is the fifth one, the TCA cycle intermediates, which are involved in chromatin modification, remodeling, DNA methylation, post-translational protein modification. And this once again triggers back into cell thetan function. So mitochondria have evolved multiple strategies that involve the environmental, both external and internal, that is intracellular, environmental changes in the dialectical event ontology of cell metabolism. And this um, integration of environmental cues with the immune system allows for the cell to maintain and the tissue to maintain some form of homeostasis. So remember that reactive oxygen species will be used to oxidize thiols, and that occurs within redox-regulated polypeptides, and that will change gene expression patterns. These are not epigenetic at this point, but can involve the activation of AMP kinase. And this often happens during um, stress of the bioenergetic or anabolic system. So this is a very, very vital mitochondrially dependent signaling phenomenon. And when you have release of mitochondrial DNA to the cytoplasm, which can occur because of the initial phases of apoptosis, that will cause that NLRP3 inflammasome activation, which works through the CGAS sting cytosolic DNA sensing mechanism. So you have signaling roles of the TCA metabolites throughout all that phenomena because they're acting as covalent and non-covalent yet clearly metabolically associated triggers to cell fate phenomena. Now, this brings us back to a discussion of NAD-dependent deacylases. These are also known as the CERTs or the sirtuins. These are enzymes that govern genome regulation, metabolism, and indeed, cellular senescence. So you have conserved deacetylase domains in two of the sirtuins, and those are both found in the mitochondria. That is sirtuin 4 and sirtuin 5. But they have little to no deacetylase activity. They have a conserved deacetylase domain, but they don't deacetylate. CERT4 actually acts as the potent lipoamidase enzyme that regulates pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. <laughs> now, CERT4 catalytic efficiency for lipoyl and biotinoyl lysine modifications 
is actually its major function in the cell. And this can be shown in vitro and in vivo because basically those activities are far in excess of any deacetylation, which CERT4 can be forced to catalyze. So pyruvate dehydrogenase, which of course converts pyruvate to acetyl-CoA, thus generating acetyl-CoA for acetylation, among all the other uh, major pathways it's, it's used for, is primarily regulated by the phosphorylation of the E1 component of PDH. And as it turns out, CERT4 enzymatically hydrolyzes the lipoamide cofactor from E2. That is the dihydrolipoleal lysine acetyltransferase, or the DLAD enzyme. And you know what happens there? You get then a diminishment of PDH activity, enzymatic activity. So CERT4 mediates the regulation of that DLAT enzyme, and therefore the lipoil levels and PDH activity. Beyond that, metabolic flux switching via glutamine stimulation induces CERT4 lipoamidase activity, directly inhibiting the PDH reaction. So these are just some of the things that CERT4, which is not a deacetylase, but falls into the family and has a correct domain, how CERT4 plays the role of guardian of cellular fate. Okay, now, why am I bringing this up? Because CERT4 is in the family of the HDACs, which are otherwise known as deacetylases or simply deacylases, like it is here, right? Because the deacylase is affected by alteration of the lipoamide component of the dihydrolipoelysine acetyltransferase. Right? All right, so let's move on. So the pyridiandrogenase lipoil group typically facilitates acetate transfer. That's its normal function in the PDH complex. Three enzymes, five catalytic events, remember. And it's used in several other multi-enzyme multi complexes. What is the lipoil group? What are the other multi-enzyme complexes? How about alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex? Okay, and all and which we were just talking about alpha-ketoglutarate metabolism, right? Yes, we were. And also the lipoil transfer is necessary for the branch chain to oxoacid dehydrogenase complex. This is also known as the BCDC in amino acid metabolism. And that involves many, many branch chain amino acid catabolic events. That's number two. Number three, lipoic acid is necessary for the glycine cleavage system, which of course completely degrades glycine to carbon dioxide and ammonia. While, while the alpha carbon is used to generate N5, N10, methylene tetrahydrofolate, which of course is part of the intermediate response for acetylmethionine metabolism, and also associated with concomitant reduction of NAD to NADH. 
So very little lipoic acid exists as the free acid. It's almost completely tethered to the epsilon amino group of a very conserved lysine residue on the lipoyl accepting domain of all those complexes I just mentioned. The KGDC, the PDH, the GCS, the BCDC, right? So a person that I'd interacted with years ago when I was a postdoc named John Cronin, who had a lab at the University of Illinois, has worked extensively on E. coli biochemistry, a lot of fantastically wonderful work in lipid metabolism. But in E. coli, he also demonstrated that there are two pathways for attaching the lipoyl group to those target lysine residues in all those complexes. Lipoic acid um, obtains from the medium and is first activated by ATP. Then it's transferred and further appended with a concomitant release of adenosine monophosphate. Now in E. coli, both steps are catalyzed by an enzyme that John Cronin's lab worked on called the lipoic acid protein ligase. However, alternatively, the lipoyl group can be synthesized endogenously as an offshoot of fatty acid synthesis. The LIPB is a, that's a gene, is a lipoyl octanoyl transferase, okay? By a lipoyl, I mean octanoyl, the eight carbon. And it can transfer either a lipoyl or an octanoyl group from a bacterial type two, <laughs> hello, acylcarrier protein, to a lipoyl accepting domain. So LIPA catalyzes sulfur insertion into the octanoyl group. And that forms then that lipoyl linkage. Now, evidence for similar endogenous pathways in eukaryotes have also subsequently been demonstrated. And that provides a, a, a good um, reason for the unexplained presence of bacterial type 2 acyl carrier proteins in mitochondria. Because typically primary fatty acid biosynthesis takes place in the cytoplasm of type 1 fatty acid synthesis. So if type 2 ACP, acyl carrier protein in mitochondria, now we know why. Because it's involved in lipoic acid metabolism. Okay. That all came from E. coli research from Cronin's lab. Now, I'll tell you some things to put this all together. You know that glutathione can block reactive oxygen species and reactive nitrogen species. Okay, It's a very important component of what it does. And both reactive oxygen and reactive nitrogen typically will inhibit the enzyme that converts methionine to acetylmethionine. That's the methionine transferase reaction, right? So <laughs> if you don't make acetylmethionine because of insufficient glutathione, you're not able to carry out any of the important methylation events. Now, 
Protein kinase C delta is also inhibited by reactive oxygen and reactive nitrogen. But when it's functional, protein kinase C will phosphorylate the ERK enzyme. The ERK enzyme will then phosphorylate the DNA methyltransferase. The DNA methyltransferase, of course, will take the methionine and it will methylate lysine residues on histones. Now, you know that the lysine demethylase is an FAD-requiring enzyme because to demethylate, you have to convert FAD to FADH2 at the same time with hydrogen peroxide, okay? And the TET enzyme then also is involved in the demethylation, right? And we know that that also requires major components of the uh, alpha-ketoglutarate, 2-hydroxyglutarate mediating system, thus hydrox making the hydroxy form of the methyl group, thus removing or demethylating DNA right? and demethylating also lysine residues on histones. So, that requires, again, alpha-ketoglutarate going to succinate, right? So all those enzymes, those demethylase enzymes, one of which, the LSD enzyme, the lysine-specific lysine demethylase, requires the FADH-FAD couple and produces the reactive oxygen species hydrogen peroxide.